Well, welcome to episode 74 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, coming to you from Washington, D.C. at the moment. And uh, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen, of course, uh, flying constantly around the country. Well, you're not flying. You're, you're all things at all times <laughs> across the Australian political scene, Peter. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, I'm in Canberra at the moment because it's, uh, it's a sitting fortnight over here uh, and there's plenty we can get to later in the chat about that. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's not that exciting or it's certainly, Hugh, not as exciting as what's going on in your world. Uh, Washington, D.C., the chance uh, in the coming weeks to, to, to follow the leaders around. I, I suspect, though, it's a case of if you're going to follow the leaders, you're going to follow Trump, aren't you? Because Joe Biden, uh, when he's not crouching in the fetal position in a bunker somewhere, he's certainly uh, not out attending mass rallies without masks, Trump style, as he, as he desperately traverses the key states. No, that's true. You're using the talking points there about him in a fetal position in the uh, in a bunker <laughs> are somewhere. They the talk- are, they the, are they the talking points? I, I, I did it unknowingly. I'm so concerned that I'm echoing the bloody talking points of the Trump campaign. Don't tell me that. Well, they're a little more gentle on him, actually. They don't mention the fetal position. <laughs> they, uh, they merely say that he's uh, in his basement, never leaves his basement, which is not quite true. But he's limited to doing things like, um, because he takes the COVID message seriously, uh, mm. he does things like mass gatherings where people are in their cars. So he'll give a speech to essentially a car park. And then when people when he gives the speech, instead of applauding people honk their horns, it's uniquely, it's uniquely American <laughs> 2020 kind of campaigning, as you'll say, you know, and we're going to unify this country and heal this country and make it better for ordinary working Americans. And then all you hear is honk, 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 hang <laughs> up in the background. It's, you know, it's, it's all comedy, if you like. But um, I took a couple of days break, actually, through a contact of mine here who's connected into a range of people. Uh, essentially in backwards Virginia. And I went down with him to meet up with um, some people who uh, were extraordinarily frank about how much they are preparing for, in their words, civil war should uh, Trump be defeated at this election. And you've, you've got to put this in the context that there are enormous numbers of Trump diehards. It's not hard to find them who believe that Trump will overwhelmingly win this election. And if for any reason he doesn't win it and doesn't win it overwhelmingly, it'll be because it was rigged and he's been robbed of his election. And, and they, are armed, they are seriously armed up. The way that the gun laws are here, people can, they complain that you can only buy one new weapon per month in the state of Virginia, but over a period of many months, they have accumulated personal armories just safe after safe after safe of special, not just military style uh, rifles, assault rifles. They're not automatic. They're semi-automatic. So you have to pull the trigger each time you do it. So they're not military in that sense, but they have. How how, how limiting, Hugh? How limiting indeed. But they have (laughs) range over, you know, these guns, they've got, you know, assault rifles with silencers. You can buy a silencer for it, or they call it a a suppressor. They don't make it completely silent, but, but it, it has that effect. Um, you know, 45s with silencers. Uh, they have these guns with sights that can target out to 700 meters and be pretty accurate over that distance. Um, as semi-automatics, bang, 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 bang. They can fire like that. And they have individuals who have shown off to me their safes with uh, two dozen per safe ammunition by the cartload stored up, military rations so they can survive sieges as they perceive it 
for months if need be. And so that's on the Trump side. And they're incredibly friendly. The guys that were meeting were welcoming. They were friendly. One of them had voted for Obama in 2008. And because he thought that was a historic moment, he'd even gone to the inauguration of Obama. So those hopes were there in 2008. But but they've been disappointed as they would perceive it. And they now fly the Confederate flag, seen by many in the United States as just a flag representing the slave age. Of course, for the alternative side of that argument, it's simply a historic relic of a, of a particular time in American history, that is the Civil War. Um, but to fly a Confederate flag, you know, is just short of flying KKK colors in the minds of many in, in America. And yet they've got them there and they're arming up and they think they're ready to go. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised that there are people doing that. Uh, I'm interested in how many uh, to get a sense of just how concerned the wider population is in, particularly in certain states. Uh, but I, I'm concerned about what happens in the wake of this election, no matter what the result. Because on the one hand, if Trump wins, I can imagine there being absolute carnage amongst some Democrat supporters rioting in the streets, as well as just absolute abject uh, disgust amongst others. But if Trump does lose, even if he loses big, and I think that probably does mitigate some of the concerns if he loses big. But if he, but even if he loses big, it all comes back to how Trump reacts. And there is no evidence, is there, that he's going to react gracefully. In fact, if there's any evidence, it's that he won't be gracious about it and that he will question it like he is doing now on the campaign trail. And that's the danger because we've had this before. Leaders on the campaign trail, yes, they say, we're going to win. Uh, and they have to be positive. They have to try to evoke that attitude to get out the vote apart from anything else. And their supporters often believe it, not just Trump supporters now, but supporters right throughout American presidential elections. They believe it and then they get stunned, the real partisans or the real biased ones, on the day of the election when the result hasn't happened. It happened to Bob Dole's supporters when he got thoroughly wiped out at an election against Clinton, Bill Clinton. So that's not uncommon, but the difference and this is, this is the worrying part. The difference is that whenever that's happened in the past, immediately on the day of or the day after the election, it becomes a calming, soothing voice from the once boisterous, confident leader in defeat. The defeated presidential candidate or indeed president suddenly is magnanimous, is positive about their adversary who they had been so negative about. And they basically work to soothe the mood and to calm their supporters to accept the result because ultimately accepting the result is all about the system. Now that's what a conservative should do just quietly and conservatives seem to be rallying around Trump, but there's no evidence is there Hugh that he's going to do that. In fact, the worry is that he'll do the exact opposite and that is where things get very scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton was, well, she didn't turn up to make a concession speech, which is, you know, I don't know. And it was criticised for, for that. Yeah, criticised for that because that was part of that action. When she did turn up, it was grudging the extreme. She wasn't going to say nice things about the man who'd gone to rallies and yelled out, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. So, and called her crooked the whole way through. So there was no great love there. I mean, one would hope if Trump was to lose, that there could be a grace moment in which he in which he says, look, let's, let's not go there. I'm willing to accept it. I'll stand, stand back. I want you all to, to just calm down. You know, we move on. It's not in his character. The only thing that you would think that might indicate that he would do that is that um, Steve Bannon, his former White House chief strategist, uh, the Svengali, as some see it, behind the Trump campaign in 2016, 
has flown the idea, floated the idea that Trump could come back in four years' time. Um, I don't know that there's a precedent for it, but the, you know he he is entitled to two terms under the under the system. He could come back and have another crack in in four years' time, and he might want to go grace graciously this time. But I think what's more likely and both sides are preparing for this, is that there will be an extended legal fight with challenges on minute levels and lots of different, you know, down to county levels, down to state levels, to try to uh, change uh, the, the vote result through the courts. Uh, there'll doubtless be some attempts built around that. They're already prepared and they've got teams of lawyers briefed and paid for to fight it exactly that way. So, uh, you know, oddly enough, I've seen uh, also met a a woman went to her house. Uh, she lives in in Virginia, in the sort of exurbia, if you like, of, of Washington, D.C. Not quite country, but you wouldn't call it quite suburban. And she has stocked up for six months. She has a basement which is rigged up. Um, her partner has military-style rifles and, and so on. And they've got sensors and light sensors around their property in case anyone comes in. They're ready to sort of hold out a siege in their quaint, pretty suburban house. These are Democrat voters. So, you know, and they believe that there is the danger that there will be a kind of a lawlessness that might follow the election if Trump loses and an unwillingness by Trump to rein in you know, he would, that he would give license to essentially these um, essentially paramilitary forces that are out there and, and that there will be a very dangerous and difficult time in the United States. And yet you'll hear others on the conservative side, the Trump diehards, who say it'll be Antifa and Black Lives Matter who'll be running around the place destroying, you know, shopping centres, looting, burning, and so on. Well well, I was just going to say, I, I, I think a, a Trump victory will see some of that, um, absolutely. And because America is so divided at the moment, uh, I'm not sure I believe that Trump is going to quell violence or uh, quash uh, people having conspiracy theories in the aftermath. I would like to think he will, but I highly doubt it. I, th I think more likely he thinks about his next play. Uh, as you mentioned, there's the prospect of running in four years' time, although I would have thought that's highly unlikely, particularly at his age and with where the Republican Party might go between now and then. But more importantly, I think he thinks about his next step going back to whatever his business interests are as his focus and his family's future. And there's two sort of possibilities there. This is assuming defeat, of course. If he is defeated and he then has to go back to all of that, where there are some real question marks around it, including about his conduct as president, he may be more magnanimous than is his desired intent if some sort of deal can be struck with the Biden camp about how he gets treated as an ex-president in the aftermath of a defeat. Or he may just simply go red hot. Uh, and, and possibly, and there was speculation about this four years ago, if he'd lost to Hillary Clinton, possibly go into the media business and challenge Fox News with a sort of a Trump news platform where he could seriously cannibalise their audience and make it even more extreme, uh, if you can believe that. That's, a, that's not out of the question with someone like Donald Trump as well. So there's a lot of options, a small window of likelihood of, of it being okay, but more likely... We're talking about to what extent 
is it a problem in the aftermath? I think one way or the other, America is looking at an incredibly volatile time, even if voters over there, depending on where their camp sits, get the result that they're looking for. And Trump is subject to a whole bunch of subpoenas and investigations, which will only gather pace and speed if he was out of office. Uh, one of the reasons it's being argued that he really does want to cling into office is that uh, the prestige of the office of the president tends to slow down some of these processes. Um, but he, he certainly would have a difficult legal time. Even if you won every case, he'd have a, a difficult legal time ahead because there's all kinds of things that are pressing on. Meanwhile, you have the election campaign. Uh, we've got a big event coming up later this week, the last of the face-to-face debates. That's in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll go down to have a look at that. But one of the things which strikes me looking around is that I remember from four years ago, what struck me was the lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. People Mm. sort of felt she was likely to win it. Um, There was no great enthusiasm for her. I see a greater determination this time by people who want to get Trump out. But that's not quite the same as saying that there is enthusiasm for Biden. And I, I think um, Biden, for all the policy substance that he represents from nearly 50 years up on Capitol Hill and then in, in the White House as vice president, um, he, he doesn't excite people. And no. um, the enthusiasm factor is critical in a, in a, in a voluntary election like this one. Yeah, I, I think I think it's all about Trump, though. So absolutely, Biden doesn't particularly enthuse people, and he doesn't of himself bring out the vote, if I could put it that way. But I'm not, you know, somebody who thinks Donald Trump is unfit for office. I'm not glass half empty about Biden as the as the presidential candidate. In fact, I'm glass half full because I think what he is is he's unoffensive or inoffensive in the way that Hillary Clinton was the exact opposite. Hillary Clinton turned off. Uh, a lot of independent voters who either didn't show up or some even radicalised and voted for Trump. Biden doesn't do that. Um, Biden appeals in the Midwest because of his background and his values over the years. Hillary Clinton did not. Uh, Hillary Clinton, when she defeated Bernie Sanders and the manner of how she defeated Bernie Sanders in a very close contest when it was assumed she would beat Trump anyway, a lot of the Sanders supporters on the more radical left of the Democrats didn't turn out to vote because it was Hillary Clinton. They won't make that mistake again, firstly, because it's Joe Biden, not Hillary, but secondly, because they've now had four years of Trump and they just want him out. Um, So I think there's a lot of factors that make Biden acceptable. And I know that there's been some talk that he's got the radical left in his ear and, and some commentators more on the conservative side of politics are trying to suggest that that's a problem. I actually think that there's an element of that, but really I think that's more beat up than reality simply because uh, he has got all that experience you mentioned, Hugh. Uh, he has never really been that radical. Uh, he's more of a centrist. He's a deal maker. All those years of experience, uh, as you mentioned, on Capitol Hill. So I, I don't think people are turning out to vote for Joe Biden, um, but really importantly, I don't think he's preventing people who want to have their say in the context of a very polarizing figure like Donald Trump from turning out. And because of the coronavirus and Trump's rhetoric and, and, and all the hostility around this campaign, I think there's a greater desire to turn up to penalize Trump than there perhaps was a year ago when things, when America was not in the position it's in now. And as offensive as he might be, people may have needed inspiration as an alternative to Trump to turn out. And Biden might not have been your person for that. 
Whereas now, uh, I think he's actually exactly the right kind of candidate in the right place at the right time. My only fear, frankly, uh, just to be completely blunt about it, is I, I, th I think I think the idea of him being able to lose this election comes back to him getting coronavirus right before polling day and, and perhaps then uh, looking weak, uh, being sick. And as much as I like Harris as a VP candidate, I could see Trump more successfully in that context, scaring some of uh, the independents and even some Democrats, frankly, uh, from turning out to vote. Uh, if, if they're seeing, you know, that kind of extraordinary situation, that would be, would it not, uh, even more extraordinary uh, than what we had four years ago with that FBI investigation in the last couple of weeks. Absolutely, because, uh, you know, Trump never misses a chance to have a crack at Kamala Harris, the, the VP uh, candidate on the Democrat side. And as you point out, if, uh, you know, people are aware that uh, uh, Biden looks a little frailer, he's not that much older than Trump, but for some reason he seems to pump less energy and, uh, and that would bring it straight back to mind. So, um, look, let's talk about uh, domestic Australian politics. There's plenty to talk about there as well. Um, PVO, we'll just take a, a quick break. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back to episode 74 of The Professor and the Hack. Hugh Remington here in Washington, D.C. at the moment for the election. PVO back in Canberra. Tell me, I'm out of touch, PVO. What's going on? <laughs> well, you're not missing much. Let me tell you that. It's a lot more interesting over there. I spend more time clicking my way through the news in the States than I do Australian politics at the moment, even though I'm right here uh, in Canberra and we've got a sitting fortnight ahead of us. The first sitting fortnight after the budget. Uh, so normally this would be actually a pretty exuberant time with a lot of focus on domestic politics. But, you know, the combination of uh, fewer MPs in the parliament, no staffers around, less attention, the distraction of a state poll up in Queensland, having just had the New Zealand election, having just had the ACT election as well. Uh, all of these things, obviously what's happening over there with you, all of these things are distractions. So what is happening here? Well, there's, there's a, look, there are still a few things. At its core, Labor is trying to focus in hard on childcare and its alternative plan around childcare. But there's not much traction for that, even though they're doing everything they can to put the attention there with their questions in question time and their focus on it. What's getting most of the attention, even though it's not being talked about in question time, are the barbs flying back and forth now uh, between the Victorian Premier Dan Andrews and particularly the Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, who of course himself is a Victorian as well, uh, over the lack of a movement on restrictions by Dan Andrews, uh, the fact that retail in particular is still closed down in Victoria, they're really letting fly at one another. Josh Frydenberg uh, was, you know, criticising Dan Andrews as, 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 as being outrageously inept in his decision-making. Dan Andrews fired back that this guy says nothing but political barbs. He's just a liberal. He's not a leader. Um, so th there's a lot of animosity going back and forth between those two. And, and just the third element in the mix, you know, you can sort of pick which of these you want to focus on, uh, is discussion around, well, certainly there's the fallout from Gladys still, but now it's really moved on still in New South Wales, but it, more back on the federal sphere around that land, Hugh, I hope that's not the hotel kicking you out, uh, land, <laughs> land in, around Badgerys Creek Airport or the site for Badgerys Creek Airport, which uh, a Liberal donor 
sold the land to the Commonwealth for 30 million when it was valued at 3 million. The Auditor General looked into this and said that there were ethical failures in the process. The then Minister for Infrastructure in that sphere was Paul Fletcher, now the comms minister, but he says he had nothing to do with it. Uh, he says that it was a decision, that was a departmental decision. There is a Senate uh, estimates hearing or, or, or committee hearing into what has been going on in relation to that. And that is getting a fair bit of attention as well because it looks dodgy and it doesn't pass the pub test, which we all like to refer to. Um, but what is highly unclear at this stage is whether there was something that was just bad in process of it, as opposed to some sort of, you know, heavier level of corruption. And of course, Hugh, that leads to, in the context of Gladys as well, and, and what's gone on with Daryl Maguire, the state in, former state MP, that's leading to calls in some quarters for the Federal Integrity Commission too. If you're a taxpayer looking at that stuff at Badgeries Creek, you'd put your head in your hands, wouldn't you? Oh. Uh, just the sheer... You know, either someone, you know, I don't, I don't want to wind up in court with anything here, but either either someone's up to seriously no good or there is a um, an almost willful lack of attention to important detail. Uh, we're told by well, the Deputy Prime Minister it's all a good deal. But well, no. yeah, I was about to say that. I mean, he literally says, oh, you know, it's going to be value for money one day. Well, it, like, it's either a legitimate price to pay or it's not and if the land is valued at three million but sold for 30 million even if there's nothing untoward in the context of politics it's purely a departmental decision without any departmental corruption let's assume and let's say it's got nothing to do with the person selling the land having liberal links and so forth so all therefore above board the best case scenario still becomes one of total incompetence fiscally as well to be prepared to pay that amount of money for something worth so much less. The fact that it I mean, might that, one day be worth so much more is irrelevant. As, that's almost more troubling because if this, if, you know, I'm not sure, but if this is just departmental kind of going about its business and if they are so, uh, you know, so blankly uninterested in where the decimal point goes, <laughs> then, then what the hell else is going on with the running of, public finances well that's what i, that's and, what I and, understand and the, and the alternative is the alternative is is that it's not a pretty picture and that there are people benefiting and that there are some backs being scratched i mean there are some nasty things that could be possibly explaining what's going on here but let's not get ourselves into litigation um whatever it is it, this is the kind of thing where we are told that we have governments that are there that are the uh, sound managers of our public finances, our money, and and God knows we get taxed for it. Um, it you know, it, it's our money out there, and it, it it's it, it it doesn't come without pain that they have that money and that it's dealt with in that that poorly. It, it, sorry, I'm 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 starting no, to no, you're right. it, in my fury. Um, it's just bloody depressing. Well, I, I'm trying to understand. Like, even if you sort of try to paint the best picture on this, how it happens. I mean, what, what a bloke has a land that the department sees is valued at 3 million. He says, well, I'm not selling it unless I get 30. I mean, I'm completely speculating here, by the way. And then what happens? The department looks at that and says, well, we need the land or else we can't develop the airport. So he's got us over a barrel. 30 it is. I mean, is that what happens? I don't know. Just one way or the other, it, it strikes me as insane how you get from 3 million to 30 million 
without an actual case for it, which I haven't seen made. I mean, other than the rhetorical rubbish of McCormick saying, oh, it's going to be a good value one day. I mean, what a moron. Sorry, I'm calling the Deputy Prime Minister that, but rightfully so. Uh, particularly in the context of when the Prime Minister is out saying, I'm troubled by it. And the, the, the then Infrastructure Minister, Paul Fletcher, is saying, had I been aware of it, I would have had problems with it and asked plenty of questions about it. So you've got those two doing what you're supposed to do as a pair of politicians when you find out about something like this. And then you've got the leader of the National Party walking around bow-legged going, oh, it seems like a pretty good deal in the long run to me. I mean, good oh, no. God. Yeah. And also the Constitution allows the Commonwealth to take private property uh, so long as there are just terms. You know, mm. for a public good, those those that, that's a part. I've seen the castle. I've seen the castle as well, Hugh. In the castle, exactly, <laughs> madam. Well read, well read legally, and and it's in. It lies in those words, just terms. So that's not just, um, you know, I can put you over a barrel and get whatever I want, or otherwise your entire airport um, plan goes to custard. It's it is just terms as determined by a process, and and that's what he'd get. He might have got a bit more than his three million, but but not by an order of ten. Um, <laughs> Anyway, there it goes. Is, is Gladys going to hang on? The, the impression seems to be that she yeah. is. Yeah, look, it looks like it, but I still think that there are a lot of ifs and buts. So she's certainly going to hang on in the short term. But let's see what happens when the full ICAC report comes down. That'll be another moment in time. Let's see if public opinion, which seems to be riding behind her at the moment, shifts between now and then. I, I have a profound issue with Gladys. I don't necessarily think it should cost her her job, but what I can't stand is her rhetoric on this. She, because she doesn't like getting questioned about this and she should spend a day in Dan Andrews shoes if she doesn't like getting tough questions, but if she doesn't like getting questioned, so she's resorted to this rhetoric now of saying, I did nothing wrong. Well, she may have done nothing corrupt uh, and she may not have done enough wrong to deserve to lose her position as premier, but to say I did nothing wrong is plainly absurd when you've got a secret relationship hidden from everyone for five years which carries enormous conflicts in it and even if you didn't know what was going on you turned a blind eye you didn't respond to the cues that were occurring uh, the on any best case scenario she clearly did something wrong it's just not as bad as it could have been and so mm. that absolutist rhetoric in a leader frankly makes me wonder what's going on in politics if she honestly can believe that she did nothing wrong. And the other problem, Hugh, and this is, this is not minor, but it's interesting. On the one hand, she says, I was in love with him. She's gone the sort of tabloid route on this. I was in love with him. I thought we could get married. But then to get around disclosure requirements in relation to um, personal relationships between colleagues in New South Wales Parliament. She, and she told this to ICAC as well. She said she didn't think it was a significant enough relationship to, to need to be more than private or to need to disclose. Now, you can't square that circle. You can't say you were in love and you thought you were going to get married, but then say it wasn't an intimate enough or personal enough or important enough relationship to need disclosure. You can't have both. It goes back to, it, 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 you know, the difficulties that came with Malcolm Turnbull when he instituted the bonking ban. Um, no, uh, Scott Morrison, an, an enthusiast for, for it at the time. Well, um, Hugh, let me, let me, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, 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 just very quickly, people should be aware of this. Exactly what you just said. Scott Morrison was a huge enthusiast for the bonking ban, so-called, amongst MPs at the federal level. Um, and Barnaby Joyce was the, the victim of that, if you like. I don't think of him as a victim, but you know what I mean. Um, 
but Morrison has been one of the people stridently coming out and defending Gladys. Uh, if that is not hypocrisy and double standards, what is? Yeah. I mean, I do have sympathy, uh, having had a relationship in my distant past with a politician to the difficulty of trying to judge when in the continuum of a relationship does it become a kind of a declarable relationship, a necessarily declarable relationship. Uh, in the past, one of the ways for this for politicians was when essentially they get listed as a partner for travel purposes. Um, but, uh, you know, that becomes kind of like a declaration of sorts. But, uh, you know, I do believe that you're entitled to certain levels of privacy, but this was a, was a multi-year relationship. And, uh, and plainly that becomes more difficult. The bit which troubles me is the kind of the going along with it uh, feel to it when it came to uh, this character's, you know, it would seem there'd be some red flags just in, in the, you know, the, the recordings that have turned up in conversations where if your partner is talking about this sort of stuff, you either know nothing about it or you're hearing enough in that to know that there's something going on, which is um, not within the normal remit of a rep elected representative, of, you know, constituency MP's life, and and that you know that you're starting to edge into other areas, and it's that kind of, you know, the blind eyeing is is a problem, because if you mm. want to run an ethical life, quite apart from an ethical polity, then at a certain point you've got to call out and say, look, this isn't. I'm not liking this. This needs to be resolved in another way. Um, anyway, that, that will resolve itself, I guess, in time. Yeah, look, it's interesting. I, I, I've got enormous sympathy for Gladys. I don't think she should go. I do think the optics of what she did or didn't turn a blind eye to aren't good for her. Uh, and I absolutely am not interested in politicians' private lives, with the perhaps occasional exception of a deeply conservative, outward-leaning politician who then doesn't live that ethos. I think that that sort of can become a matter of public interest to some extent, but generally speaking, I'm not interested in their private lives. I, I'm more interested though, and this is a process thing as much as anything, rather than something you can necessarily pin on Gladys. There, there really is a lack of detail around what avenues are there for a politician in that situation. I mean, for example, if, if you, cause she was essentially a version of his boss, but of course it's first among equals in parliament. So not necessarily his boss, but it, it needs some sort of disclosure, but I can equally understand that she wants to maintain her privacy and she is a very private person about that kind of thing. But it's interesting in, in any other workplace, you know, if you were to have a relationship uh, with somebody who worked for you in particular, where there are reporting lines there, you know, th there are mechanisms to, to deal with that, but maintain your privacy. You know, you can talk to HR, you can go through a process that ensures that you as a, as a new burgeoning couple can keep your privacy from work colleagues, if that's what you want. But you also, um, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's when it comes to removing some of those conflicts. There doesn't appear to be strong mechanisms for that at the state level. Um, you know, there's no sort of HR equivalent that Gladys and Daryl Maguire could have gone to to try to sort of, if you like, not disclose it publicly, but disclose it appropriately, privately. And, and I think that's just an interesting thing to reflect on. Yeah, and, and, and had it existed, then it might have put some constraints on Maguire's behaviour. Yeah. Because he would have known that it was being essentially subject to, to a kind of an internal process of audit and that people would have been paying more attention to it properly, uh, not interested in his private life, but just interested in, 
potential conflicts of interest and that being aware of that, uh, those eyes on, on him, it might have actually saved him. You know, the yeah. irony being yeah. is, that, is that sometimes the rules save us, uh, yeah. you know, because too much rope, we know what happens. We're out of time. PVO, uh, we'll talk again uh, in a week or so and, um, and we'll be that much closer to the election date over here and God knows what lunacy will pass in between. And I will be fascinated to hear the latest of what's happened between now and then in US politics and then we can just tack a bit of domestic on the back. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, PVO, take care. See you, man. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.